Worse Than Fiction Unsolved contains graphic language and subject matter. You've been warned. McAllister passed away, she was only 22 years old. She struggled with drugs during the end of her life, but so many of us have our own issues. It doesn't make you any less deserving of love, respect, and most importantly, justice. Taylor was a beautiful young woman who was full of life and music. She was dedicated to her family. However, in 2016, The McAllister family's lives were irreparably shattered when the light in their baby's eyes was replaced with Batikia. Today, they're on the path for justice for their daughter. Today, we at Worse Than Fiction Unsolved remember Taylor with them and all of you. Taylor McAllister was born on July 21st, 1994, to parents Bill and Leslie McAllister. She was a self-taught guitarist with a lovely, lovely singing voice and had two sisters that she loved as well. Uh, She was the middle child. Where was she born? Uh, I know most of this case takes place in St. Petersburg, Florida. Is that uh, her hometown? That I don't know, actually. Ah, see, I come with the loaded questions. Apparently today you sure do. Melbourne, Florida is where she was born. Okay. Taylor blossomed into an amazing musician. Um, Her parents post a lot of her videos and she just had a great voice. I think you looked up some of her YouTube covers. Yeah, yeah. She had a whole bunch of YouTube videos uh, just covering various pop songs and some indie rock, Radiohead. And uh, we'll play one of those at the end. We're going to play her rendition of Creep by Radiohead. So stick around for that. She does a, a really good job on it. That's a tough cover. Oh, yes. According to the briefcase files, which I used as a source, she moved out and got married at 18 and kind of also started to experiment with drugs at that time. When she and her husband were living in Seattle, she became pregnant and came back home since she had, quote, reached her limit. Still legally married. The husband was in the military and on deployment, and they didn't really have much of a relationship after she went back to Florida, according to everything that I've read. So her parents, Bill and Leslie, took her to all the appointments. They made sure she had prenatal care. And I just let's take a minute here to appreciate what a hell of a family that was. Yeah, my wife's uh, mother was really good about that kind of stuff, too, when uh, she was pregnant with my girls. Uh, Neither one of us had a license. Mine was suspended, and she hadn't gotten hers yet. And even if she had, we didn't have a car because we were dirt poor. And, man, if it wasn't for my wife's uh, mom, my mother-in-law, it would have been tough going. So, yeah, definite, definite kudos to them. And to yours. Yes. So after Taylor gave birth via C-section, her substance abuse came back up, which her parents figured out and they tried to help her with it. 
just for a second here, do we know what kind of drugs she had gotten into? Is this, was she just smoking a little bit of weed? Did she get into pills? Was it a little more hardcore? Like maybe she got into heroin or uh, cocaine or some of that kind of stuff? In the beginning of her addiction, it started with, from all accounts that I've read, like a prescription drug abuse type of thing. Like after her C-section and she had her girls, they would notice her medications were dwindling down to nothing in way more of a quick time than, than they should have. Yeah, so she probably started maybe with Vicodin. Um, Lortab type of thing. Yeah, the, the bottom level opiates. So left behind were Taylor's uh, adorable twin daughters. So she was a pretty young mother. Um, she passed away at 22 when the girls were two. So she would have been pregnant about 1920. And there are no names, no kids names because they're minors. This is their privacy. So we know at some point Taylor became addicted to drugs. And let's emphasize again, just like we said in episode one, we're going to respect you, whether you have substance abuse problems or a sex worker, you deserve it. Yep. Even if you're a criminal uh, of, 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 of almost any kind, we'll say uh, you don't deserve to be murdered or go missing and no one ever be charged or no one ever face the consequences for that. Well said. So when she was in the depths of her addiction, she moved out of the house, no longer living with Bill and Leslie, again, her parents. And it seems like she kind of bounced around. One source um, says she'd call her mom and dad from different phone numbers at random times, kind of check in. So knowing this, it doesn't seem totally abnormal for a struggling lady to not really speak with her family for a few months. Right. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I think that's kind of normal. I mean, for some people, nothing crazy. If, especially if it's normal for her, Um, some people call their mom or dad or, or or whoever daily, sometimes several times a day. Some people, uh, probably mostly men won't call their parents for, you know, Extended periods, maybe a couple weeks, a month, maybe two months. And shame on them. Maybe. <laughs> depends. There may be some circumstances there. Uh, but, you know, whatever's normal uh, is normal for that person. And not all of us have enough to say every time we call someone. So we have a young woman in the grip of addiction kind of bouncing around different places doesn't make maybe she doesn't have a phone at that time. Yeah. Could be strung out in, in some way as well. WRAL says Taylor's friends described her relationship that she began with one Robert Butler the third as a quote sugar daddy kind of thing. This is uh, further supported by several articles like Tampa Bay Times and one from Daily Mail. So we're not judging. We, we don't do that. So for neutrality's sake, we'll keep that one as being alleged. So either way, she moved in with this Butler character. He had money. His family was pretty wealthy because his father owned a carpet store in Florida that blossomed into a chain. Pretty much. Yeah, and what I seen was they had uh, 13 or 14 of these stores, I believe. It was like Bob's Carpet. Like, you'll see, like, you know, you'll get that obnoxious commercial that comes on TV, or you'll have this little store that's got a big statue out in front, like Big Bob's Carpet Outlet or whatever. It's like one of those kind of things. Pretty much. That would have been it. So this Butler character has a hell of a record. There are 67 charges alone I found on the Pinellas County Court website. Busy fella. These range from a metric ton 
of traffic infractions to operating a lawn sprinkler on an unauthorized day. Wow. That's a thing. And I've never heard of anyone getting cited for that. Only in Florida, right? I, I guess so, where it's damp and wet most of the time. I found several drug charges, like um, possession of paraphernalia, marijuana, and there was cocaine. Disturbingly, there was a guilty plea in 1992, so this is two years before Taylor's even born, to aggravated assault and battery and false imprisonment. He'd have been around 27 when this happened, according to his date of birth that was in the records. Looking at these court records, it showed at first that he entered a not guilty plea and that was changed. And there was a charge for tampering with a witness at the same time this was going on. So he he changed his plea to what? Was it guilty or no contest or? He changed it to guilty. Okay. There's a, there's a little bit of a difference between those, I think. Like, no contest is like, you're not pleading that you're guilty. You're just saying you don't have enough to back up your not guilty plea. So right. if you're pleading guilty, he, he did this. Now, false imprisonment. So he, he held someone against their will. If I read the documents correctly, I think it was like a former spouse. Okay, so, yeah, he he may, I guess this is a, maybe a domestic abuser we're looking at here. I hate those. So, in 2007, he had another battery charge. Guess what? Guilty. Guilty. Honestly, like, if you can do something against the law, it looks like he did it. Thousands of dollars of court fees, years of probation, like, to me, it's a thousand wonders he kept a driver's license, period. But then again, he did get charges for driving suspended. Been there, done that. So, in other words, Butler gave zero fucks about laws, rules, any kind. Real piece of work here. We've established that Robert Butler had money. Taylor lived with him. It was convenient. She had a roof over her head. Pretty nice one. And Butler kept her supplied with drugs. These are the facts. We try to stick to those, but let's also throw in that the family that runs the Facebook page and group hashtag Justice for Taylor 22, which is one of my primary sources, makes the claim that Butler has a live-in drug dealer at this time. Okay, okay. So... This Do we know what year this was that she went to stay with this guy, uh, Robert Butler? She passed in 2016, so it would have been that year or very close to it. Okay, I, I just wasn't sure if she had been staying with him for a, a couple of years or whatever. I don't think it was one of those things. Kind of a fast move in. So it stands to reason this is one big party house. I wanted to find a photo of this house to see if it's the McMansion I've got pictured in my head. It is. Um, We'll share those on social media so you can have a look as well. Yep. Instagram, probably Twitter, Facebook, Facebook group. Uh, Links to those will be in the notes. So if you want to see them, go there. At some point on or around the night of December 21st, 2016, something happened. Exactly what, we don't know, but we do know that it resulted in the death of a lovely young woman. Mr. Butler's allegation in this is that Taylor overdosed. So what does he do? But call a few of his friends to deal with her and not the completely logical thing, which would have been 911. Yep. So there's his allegation. Here are the conflicting facts. Now, now uh, I hate to interrupt you there, but did, did he ever say, or were you able to find out what he said? She quote unquote overdosed on exactly what on none of my sources had that. Okay. So he just, 
said that she overdosed and it was that simple. There's no, oh, she OD'd on Xanax or she OD'd on OCs or what have you. Most of the toxicology information was actually shared by the McAllister family. Um, my assumption on this, based on the, the post, is to silence the naysayers who said she did nothing but OD. She had in her system um, no alcohol, which includes ethanol, methanol, and isopropanol. So my science background translates, she was not drinking and did not have a metabolic acidosis diabetic issue. Cocaine was negative. Cocaine ethanol byproduct was negative. Benzoglycanine was positive. So let me nerd out for a minute and I'll explain. Um, Benzoglycanine is formed as a metabolite. So that's made when the body is processing and getting rid of the cocaine. So she had done some cocaine sometime recently before she had had died. Right. Uh, This means she had done the cocaine within four to five days of the tests per the um, steps recovery website. And there are a lot of factors that can affect how long that metabolite is in your system. So that's a a decent estimate. Um, Height, age, weight, your tolerance to the drug and the potency of this all have a factor in how long it's in your system. Yeah, like like pretty much any other drug, mm-hmm. weed, you know, whatever it may be. Tampa Bay Times had further stated, quote, she had hepatitis, kidney failure, and bacterial growth on her heart valves that can come from using dirty needles. She had abscesses in her lungs and suffered a stroke, end quote. So here's the um, not so fun fact. Strangulation victims will actually have a stroke sometimes because of the blood flow being cut off from their brain. Yep. Yep. And they'll, they'll have actually, uh, they can also have, they can have multiple strokes in a matter of seconds. Uh, in fact, I, I went into strangulation a lot for one of the worst in fiction episodes and very, uh, aware of what this looks like. Right. So you can imagine she's not in the best of health at this time. So these friends were able to carry her with ease. So back to it. Um, Butler called some of his associates to deal with this. He's not getting his hands dirty. Here's where we're going to meet uh, Deontay Baker, then 35, the self-professed drug dealer, according to the Tampa Bay Times. So is is this the quote unquote live in drug dealer that you mentioned before? Is this the same guy? That would be him. Okay. He responded to Butler's call along with uh 24 year old Karan Archer. And this is kind of where everything just goes to hell. Baker tells two different stories about this. At first he says Taylor's deceased when he gets there. Then he turns around and said she was weak, almost unconscious. Okay, which is a great time to, you know, call 911 to get help for her. Absolutely. Uh, even if she's already dead, like either one of those situations is like, hey, man, why don't you just call somebody? Uh, isn't there, you know, and I didn't look into this and I should have. I'm not sure how many states have this, but. I know in Ohio, I believe we have a Samaritan law where if someone ODs in your house and you call for help, it protects you from prosecution uh, because Florida has that as well for help. Okay. So you did look into that. I did. Okay. Yeah. So they have the Samaritan law. Uh, If these guys, um, they wouldn't have been prosecuted if they would have just called for help. Completely sensible thing. Mr. Archer um, didn't really have much of a criminal record. I found a felony disorderly conduct in 2012. Told the authorities that Taylor passed away in the vehicle. What was reported as absolutely concrete is that 
When Taylor was dealt with, the two of them called Butler and they were told to not come back to Palm Harbor with that body under any circumstance. I don't know what to say about that. So we had this guy and he, he had two stories. One of them said that she was weak and almost unconscious. So then we have these guys say she passed away in the vehicle. And how did this come about? Did they call him like, Hey man, she died. Like, uh, what should we do? And he's just like, ah, just as long as you don't bring her back here, we're good. I don't, I don't know. It was pretty much. Huh. Do anything, just don't is, bring her back. Isn't that what they were doing in the first place, though? They were, quote, unquote, getting rid of her? Or did I fuck that up? No, you didn't fuck that up. I think okay. uh, I think these guys are uh, twisting their story up a little bit here is what's happening. Any story that they could have told, she's dead already. She's dying now. She died with us. They did it. Yeah, and uh, now they're saying... Uh, well, she was weak and unconscious when we found her, and then we took her out. Now, it's concrete that Butler said, don't come back with the body under any circumstance. So, what if she was still This is, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by this entire thing. And I've, I've, ah, I just don't know what to say. So, he hands the keys to this big, gigantic pickup truck. It was nice as hell. Don't come back with her. So on December 22nd, 2016, the day after, her lifeless body was found in an alley by a man hunting for aluminum cans to to recycle. She's splayed out. Her shirt's pulled up. Her pants are gone. And what was really curious to me is there seemed to be a boot print on her upper back about the right shoulder area. It might just be me, but it looked like there was like some sort of pattern there, like you'd see on Timberlands or something. I looked at it and uh, I, I wasn't able to definitively point that out, but I could see uh, where you could find a pattern there. Um, so it's very possible. There, there are some curious things about the the crime scene photo. We'll call it a crime scene photo. Uh, the photos of her where they found her. There there are some curious things there, for sure. And the McAllister family shared those. Um, some of the autopsy reports, they're extremely disturbing. Yes. That's their baby. Yep, and they they posted them on Facebook, the, the pictures of their dead daughter, uh, where they found her. Uh, posted them on Facebook. That's you know Brave. how much they want justice for her, and you guys can find those um, search justice for Taylor twenty two. At the same time, though, they will share some of the graphic things, but they'll kind of temper that with a video of her singing and playing guitar. So here's some of the details from the postmortem: petechia, which anyone who doesn't know that. Small blood vessels that have burst make uh, red-purple splotches of her eyes and the surrounding orbital area. Petechia in her mouth. Several articles in the source list said that the medical examiner stated this was the worst petechia he'd ever seen. Like, hello. How fucking huge is St. Petersburg? How much does this guy see to say that? Oh, yeah. He probably sees it. A strangulation victim at least once a year, I would say. Maybe twice, maybe even three times. I know here in Hamilton, this is a smaller city. I don't think it's as big as St. Petersburg, but there's there's probably one or two strangulation victims a year here. And we're talking a, a city that's, you know, less than what are we? We've got like 60,000, 70,000 people here. Yeah, we, we don't have that here. I'm well aware. <laughs> she had some bite marks in her mouth. I don't know if you got into this during your strangulation research. Um, a lot of strangulation bict- victims will bite the shit out of the inside of their mouth when they're being Strangled, assaulted. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they're it's kind of involuntary from what I know or from what I looked up is that uh, 
it's and oh boy what happens is the blood pressure builds so much because your heart's pumping so hard to try to get oxygen to your head that your face will swell up your tongue will swell up the uh the flesh of your cheeks will swell up and you're you're fighting and you're doing whatever you can and it will literally like you can't close your mouth without biting down on your the the inside of your cheeks your tongue uh any of that so that's part of the struggle is almost every strangulation victim uh and we're not talking about like putting a pillow over someone's face some of that does happen but with someone who's being hands on hands on their neck or they've someone's using a garrote of some sort or whatnot uh the pressure builds up so bad that you're biting your own flesh trying to to fight yourself out of it like and uh along with the petechiae uh you say petechiae i say petechiae but uh yeah i i got into the a lot of that uh, when i was researching strangulation the more you know She had um, a non-fatal abrasion on her head and areas of this dried grayish white material on her forearms and part of her left cheek. So you would think this is something like duct tape adhesive or the residue of that and a very, very clear left hand print on her neck in these pictures. Yeah, well, I wasn't able to identify it 100% as a handprint, but just looking at the damn photo, it's obvious there was something putting pressure on her neck. It's glaringly obvious. I think that was the left hand. Yeah. And there appeared to be tire tracks on her legs, which pretty noticeable on the left one. And then you see these marks on her wrist like they were restrained. Yeah. Well, and another weird thing I found about this, and I looked at these pictures there, and I didn't see this mentioned anywhere. There is what looks like blood on her right forearm, and it looks like it's coming from a wound, and it looks like it bled downward as if she had her hands up near her face, and it kind of like ran down her forearm toward her elbow. And then it takes a sharp turn toward the ground where she's laying. So to me, it looks like she had like a little wound that was bleeding. It trickled down. And then all of a sudden she's on the ground and then a little bit of blood ran down toward the ground. And wherever we post these, or maybe we'll just post a link. I'm not sure what the best way to go about that would be is you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. And it's like, yeah, that no, that she she was on her feet at some point bleeding and then was on the ground and a little bit ran down it's a it's a it's a right angle how this blood flow went likely holding her hands up uh-huh or to keep from being hit in the face or strangled right um and another thing that stood out to me is that her face, her neck is discolored, as you would expect from strangulation. But the rest of her body is pretty much a normal color, what you would kind of expect uh, for someone that hasn't been deceased for any you know long period of time. Uh, did we mention uh, how long after she passed that she was found? She was at least out there overnight. Or close to it. Okay, so she wasn't even out there full 24 hours. Uh, no. There was some pooling um, where the blood settled in her back as well. So there's that and on the bottom, like, forearm area. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is what you would expect. But for the most part, her skin wasn't uh, discolored except, you know, her face, no. her neck. It was a fairly normal skin color as well as it could be anyway. So they find Taylor um, 
They get her ID'd, contacted her estranged spouse and then her parents. And and this seems like the perfect spot to just throw in that the very last message she sent to her family was telling her mom happy birthday in September. She's found dead in December. And that's some absolutely heartbreaking stuff, but there are far worse things that could have been said. And her mom has that to hang on to. Yeah. At least they weren't like arguing, I guess at the time, I guess the last thing you get from your daughter could be, could be far worse than that. Like you said, after Taylor's discovered, um, they've contacted her family. They did start an investigation. Uh, we talked about the autopsy. Let's get into some of the info they obtained. They learned from the parents about this association with Robert Butler. I did watch the ID show Still a Mystery that said Mr. Butler was questioned the day the body's found. He has fresh scratches on his forearms and head, along with a huge bruise on one of his shoulders. And it's like the most telling part of this whole interview came up when the police asked for a DNA sample and then he lawyers up. Well, I'm not going to fault anybody for lawyering up. I would have probably lawyered up and I advise anyone, if you ever find yourself in an interrogation room, just lawyer up, even if you're innocent, uh, because a lot of innocent people go to jail because they don't lawyer up. So I'm not going to throw him under the bus for that. But... But if I was innocent, I would also agree to the DNA sample. He's obviously not um, endangered, shall we say. He's rich and white. So this is what really, really pissed me off. During the autopsy, they did collect samples from under Taylor's nails. Robert Butler's fucking DNA is under her nails. And the St. Pete police just brush it off. Oh, well, they live together. Uh, that, no, what? No, that's not what you do. You don't, you don't brush that off. If you find somebody who has been left on the ground in what they call an alley. Now, to me, it looks like a, uh, it's like a field and a dirt road. It's not like a city alley where it's like, you know, two buildings in it. We're not talking, you know a small city alley. This is like, there's a field there. It's a dirt road and she's found there. His DNA is under her fingernails. They live together. Uh, He's got scratches on his face, on his forearms. uh, What what's that look like to you? uh, Her fighting for her life. Possibly. I mean, right. It it doesn't take a, a Sherlock Holmes to, to figure that out, but my my question about that is, and, and I don't think you touched on this, was their relationship intimate? Was it more than just uh, him feeding her drugs? Were they an item? I don't think it was a technical relationship in the conventional way that I, I think you're getting at. Um Nothing ever really was said about that. I mean, he's in his 50s. She's this pretty young 22-year-old. So I don't I don't think my assumption is that it's not like that, but I don't have anything concrete on that. So then they couldn't just outright say, "Oh, you know, they maybe they had uh rough sex or whatever and she got into it." So he wasn't using that as as an excuse that you know of. No. ID channel okay. didn't touch on that. Uh, none of the articles I read touched on that. Okay. I, I have uh, heard other cases where that is, you know, oh yeah, it's natural that you would find her DNA under my fingernails because, you know, we had, uh, you know, kinky sex uh, last night or whatever. Why would you not just say that though? Right. You know? Exactly. That's, that's why I asked is if uh, you've seen anything on that. So, They've got his DNA under her fingernails. He's got scratches on his face. That's, I don't know of many people who scratch someone's face during kinky sex, but, uh, oh boy, forearm, okay. A, I'll, I'll give you that, but the face, now there's a red flag, big, big, big red flag. And then 
after this, it nothing happens. It's like they just dropped it and they they pushed this file to the cold case section or, or something like that. So the the official ruling was what? What was the manner of death? It was homicide at the hands of another. Okay, so it wasn't ruled an overdose. Despite what the McAllister family says, there were some witnesses on scene. I hate this. It ran all over me. Some of the police were supposedly cracking jokes to one another about this junkie bitch. Despite that, no. Homicide. Absolutely disgusting. Look, I get the 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 humor because you know the police see all kinds of, of frankly fucked up shit, and sometimes like what can you do but crack a joke? You don't do it at the expense of the person who's laying dead next to you, though. Like that's fucking no. disgusting. So here's some more shit. Over a year later, this investigation kind of started to heat up a little bit more. But instead of really getting hot, it just kind of went lukewarm. By that time, it's been a year later. Everything belonging to Taylor is chucked out of Butler's house. The truck she was put in has been detailed. And the police had had surveillance on people cleaning this house. This year later, they finally get a warrant for the cell phones from these three guys. Butler, Baker, Archer, which showed Butler staying at home and Mr. Baker and Mr. Archer going to this alley and coming back home. The ledger, one of my source articles, said there were multiple, like we're talking five or more cell phones carried by some of these guys, these burner phones. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you've got a pocket full of cell phones. Yep, that you know, you it's a little prepaid deal. You use it, you check you know, it, throw it away, and and forget it existed. The only charges that came out of this surveillance, this investigation that got three hundred plus pages, was failure to report a death. Ugh. That's not a misdemeanor. Enough. Yep, not good enough, guys. That's a fucking misdemeanor. I mean, well, and I'm sure that's a, a fairly serious misdemeanor. It's not like a, they're going to have a $300 fine and, and get sent on their way. They, they're probably going to do some jail time for it. But we'll get to that. Taylor's parents have been in almost constant contact with St. Pete police investigators and have made appeals to social media to contact the district attorney for the city, as well since the DA didn't pursue any murder charges based on any of this evidence. In fact, the way that it looks is that Taylor's whole ordeal has been used to set up a drug sting. What? Yeah. This dirty fucker butler paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for drugs in checks. Who pays for drugs with checks? That's what I'm saying. I have never been like, oh, you know, sign over a check to some dude who sold me a little bit of weed and like, oh, what what do you put in the memo for a fucking bag of weed? Like, no, I guess he could put in the memo, whatever, and they could just take it to the bank and, you know, he could write gift in the memo. And and that's how they do that, I guess. I mean, I guess it's not out of of the realm of possibility, but it's strange nonetheless. Almost $200,000. So he ends up charged with money laundering in this whole thing for all the pot and the cocaine purchases. Some of these checks are for Deontay Baker, some of them to Baker's girlfriend. And I am 100% confident in saying that Robert Butler is one of the dumbest some bitches I've ever read about. But um, Butler did plead guilty to these charges in federal court. So he got sentenced for that. Still a mystery. The ID show did show some of the visits that Leslie McAllister, Taylor's mom had with Deontay Baker. So she went to see him in jail. She works as a paramedic. And after she gets off, she stops by just 
hoping, you know, that Deontay Baker could help her with something. I, I can't say I blame her too much. It doesn't look like the police are doing much. So, yeah, like a lot of parents of uh, missing, murdered, unsolved uh, people, they're taking the investigation into their own hands in any way they can. So her mother, Leslie, appears to be doing exactly that. Right. So Baker wants to help. He tried. He offered to wear wire and try to get Butler to say something, but the police didn't care. They they didn't want it. So when and you didn't mention this. You said Baker pled guilty to this. Uh, how long did he get sentenced uh, to jail for? Mr. Butler is currently an inmate at Danbury Federal Corrections. Um, his release date is September of 2021 per the BOP website. So that is 2017 to 21. He gets about three and a half to four years. And so Mr. Baker, uh, Deontay Baker, he's in jail, right? He was when um, Mrs. McAllister was visiting him. Okay. Okay. So he's out now. To the best of my knowledge, I did look him up. Um, There's nothing current going on. So he offers to wear a wire to to talk to Robert Butler, maybe see if he'll say something. They didn't want it. St. Police, uh, St. Petersburg police didn't want it. We've been there before where they don't want to accept help. Uh, these uh, police departments that are supposed to be investigating this stuff, like turning down help. What? No, this shouldn't be a thing at all. No. Nobody wants to do the work is what it is. They don't want to do the the actual work. That's why she got pushed to the cold case file. In some small consolation, um, 2018, Bill McAllister did seek a civil suit uh, as representative of the estate of Taylor and as an individual. Um, His wife is listed there, too. They did settle for 750K in July. And the McAllister twins will be totally taken care of. Uh, The court records said they were adopted by their paternal grandparents. So the court records show um, the twins are adopted by their father's parents. Uh, They're going to be taken care of with this trust fund, this annuity. They got a settlement for wrongful death, which is kind of the best you can do civilly. So there's enough there. Yeah, same thing happened with OJ. Fuck OJ. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, obviously, but he 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 lost a civil suit uh for wrongful death. That uh, is my point, you know. Which meant, you know, they found that there was enough there to to figure out that he was responsible, but you know, double jeopardy. He failed to charged with it. And that's kind of the crux of this whole case. They had his DNA. They have her living there. They likely could have matched at least the size of his hand on her neck. And what happens now? He's in prison till next year. On completely unrelated charges. And it looks like they just used Taylor's whole death to put this guy up for cocaine and weed. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I, I mean, it, somebody just, like I said, they just don't want to do the work here. I mean, it's it's all laid out. There needs to be some good guy that comes along or good good guy or good woman or, or, or whoever. Good person. Ne- good person needs to come along and light some kind of fire under the ass of this whole thing and get it moving and get something done. Because you don't end up dead in a field next to a field on a dirt road with obvious strangulation marks with all of the telltale signs of being strangled to death and no one face charges for it. Especially when you've got DNA evidence, you've got cell phone evidence of these people taking her out there, you've got uh, all kinds of circumstantial evidence, yet here we are with another one that isn't 
actively being investigated that we know of, much like the case of Luke Stout. If you're that good person, if you have this information, you can anonymously contact Crime Stoppers or the St. Petersburg Police Department. 727-893-7780. Or you could likely contact Taylor's parents at the Justice for Taylor 22 page. They're very active. Anyone. You could call anyone. You could call the Florida State Police. You could call anyone anonymously and give them whatever you've got. Hell, send it to us. We'll forward it on. Sure, absolutely. You, you know, all of our information will be in the notes, so you can let us know, and we'll uh, we'll definitely pass that along. This one killed me. Well, and the thing about this one is, there's so much more information here than there was with uh, Luke Stout. We got a body. Yeah, there's a body. Uh, there's evidence. Uh, quite a bit of it, it sounds like. Uh, probably more than we know about, actually. Um, yeah. Active investigations and the yeah. inability to and, share. And, and it, we've got a similar situation where either they're not doing anything or they're not saying that they're doing anything. We have the cell phones. You mentioned the DNA, the, all the circumstantial evidence. She lived there. What the fuck else happened to her? She didn't overdose. Nope. I don't know why anybody would want to argue with that. I don't know why anyone wouldn't want to pursue it. I mean, hell, we had uh, a case here, um, which I'll, I'll probably get into on uh, an episode, uh, maybe a Patreon episode of Worse Infection. Like, we had a guy here that... Uh, was found murdered uh, in 2003, I believe. It's It's been quite some time. Uh, they found him in a creek. There was almost no evidence of uh, who had done this, but they pursued this relentlessly until they convicted one of my friends for murdering this guy. Uh, so that's what you do. You don't, Act like it didn't happen. You find someone who wants to find out what happened and you let them do it. On that note, um, for any of the pictures, the source material, any of the extras that we've got, um, we're on Instagram, Facebook, Les loves Twitter. No, I don't. Yeah. Twitter's all right. Yeah. You can find it on Twitter. Uh, all of the social media. Uh, worse than fiction podcast.com. You can find some transcripts of the regular show. You can find the players for both the regular and unsolved. Um, you can find the email address. I think we need to add some of Chelsea's information on there and put her out there as well. Um, well, <laughs> I am on Twitter at Chelsea WTFU worse than fiction unsolved. I'm on Instagram, not a whole lot, to be entirely honest. Um, Amazing X Disgrace. And you can catch me on Facebook, uh, The Detestable and The Damned. I'm also in the Worse Than Fiction uh, group. I want to thank the McAllister family for graciously allowing Chelsea to uh, dig into this with their blessing. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening. And that's about all the thank yous I have. I'm with you on that uh, gigantic, huge thank you to Mr. Bill and Mrs. Leslie. You're amazing. Keep fighting the good fight. We're right behind you. Yes. So until you hear from us again, goodbye. Again, here is Taylor McAllister covering Radiohead's Creep. Hello. I'm going to cover, attempt to cover Creep by Radiohead. Um, yeah. Let me know what you think. When you're here before 
Thank you.